Hello, language enthusiasts, and welcome to The Language Worker, a space to talk about the people involved in the language business in a broad sense. I'm interested in finding out how their training, work experience, and their passion for languages has shaped our guests' professional and, of course, personal lives. Join me on this journey to explore the multiple and unpredictable paths one can follow when we are involved in the magical world of languages. Heidi Karina is a part of my LinkedIn network, and I have been noticing her work because her posts are interesting and smart. So I thought it was going to be a great idea to have her on the podcast to meet her, and because Looking at her LinkedIn profile, I couldn't really find out any clues about where her interests in the Japanese language and culture came from. So I really wanted to hear it from her before investigating any further. And here's the result of our conversation. Hi, everybody. So today I invited Heidi Carino just from reading her posts on LinkedIn. That's the truth, right? So we've never spoke before. Again, this is uh, our very first time. And I thought, okay, two minutes, let's start recording and <laughs> see how it goes. Because <laughs> I like the element of surprise. So this is first, I'll do my best in trying to just pronounce your name. Uh, so this is Heidi Carino, right? But she will talk <laughs> about her name a little bit more because it's probably a Japanese name, but I don't even know. And this is where I'm going to start how Japanese came into your life because you're obviously British, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, 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 I'm British. Yeah. Okay, so here we go. So how did Japanese come into your life? Okay, um, this is a story that I've told a few times. Mm -hmm. So I'm sorry if you've already heard it. I haven't, so. Um, yeah, okay. Um, so I was uh, working at a uh, casino in my hometown, Newcastle, in the northeast of England. Uh, I was working at Casino at night, and during the day I was going to school uh, with the aim of going to university. Um, and then I met a guy <laughs> in a club, um, and we started dating, and um, he was Japanese. He was wow. studying at the university, and then when his studies finished, he had to return to Japan and he asked me if I wanted to go. So I was working a job to save money to pay to go to university. And it didn't really bother me if that job was in the UK or it was in Japan. Mm -hmm. And I'd heard, I mean, this was back in the, the late 90s before mm -hmm. the internet. So I'd right. heard by word of mouth that if you were uh, an English speaker, and I was an English literature major, mm -hmm. then you would be able to get a job teaching English. So I went to Japan thinking I could get a job teaching English, uh, save up money to go to university, come back to the UK and get my degree. Unfortunately, when I got there, I found out that you actually need a degree to work for the English language schools. Oh. Um, and I didn't have one. <laughs> so the choice was either go back to the UK and continue doing what I was doing or uh, stay in Japan and go to university in Japan. And I was fortunate enough to be accepted to uh, International Christian University, which is called, I which is ICU for short in uh, Tokyo. And they have a really good Japanese language program wherein you join in the September if you're an overseas student um, and you spend a year learning Japanese 
and then you go on to study your your major subjects mm -hmm. for the next three years and the subjects are taught in either English or Japanese. Um, if you're a Japanese student, you enter in the April and you spend a year or, or however long is necessary brushing up your English and then you also go on to study your major subjects. So after the first year, uh, English native speakers and Japanese native speakers are mixed within classes and you might take a class which is taught by an uh, English speaking professor, but all the work needs to be done in Japanese. Um, I, once wow. took a, I once took a course on um, Western art, mm -hmm. which was taught by a Japanese professor in English, but my assignments <laughs> had to be done in Japanese. <laughs> so um, it was a very, it was a very interesting experience. And I, I didn't really um, have any knowledge of Japanese to that point. It was literally just, I met a guy and I followed him home. Um, and that was it. Yeah, that was how my... So my it was not was. like you were interested in the culture and then you got interested uh, in the guy because you already had some references. It was nothing like that, right? Because this is what I was expecting. I was like, oh yeah, probably. That's why I didn't investigate too much and I didn't hear anything about it. I'm like, let's see what happened. But I thought in my mind, Okay, she was already into manga or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something I mean, like that. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, and to be honest, and think back at that time, there probably wasn't that much interest in Japanese culture anyway. I mean, it was the late 90s. So mm -hmm. if you were into Japanese culture, you would have to probably be in London where there was access to that kind of uh, like manga and, or anime or whatever, mm -hmm. or be in Japan or have quite a deep connection there. You wouldn't be, you wouldn't just come across it in a bookshop like you do nowadays, right? There, There's manga in, in the, in like an average city's bookshop. So you can, you can kind of get into that culture. But for me, it was completely random. I just happened to, to fall in love <laughs> with a guy who was, who was from Japan. So yeah, very, I remember I think, at very university. Yeah. Yeah, I remember mm -hmm. at university, I also had my first Japanese friend in the late 90s <laughs> when I was <laughs> at university because there was a moment where we needed, so I studied linguistics and we needed to come up with a sentence in a language that other people didn't know about, right? So I had this friend, Pedro, who was actually studying Japanese and mm -hmm. he went to Japan for a year and then he brought his girlfriend over, Lena, mm -hmm. and she was lovely. So I would help her with her work and it was a great window into different mm -hmm. people in different things. And then she taught me a sentence. Let's see if I can say it. I think, okay, this was t 25 years ago. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Watashi wa sensei ga suki. Is this possible? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it means I, I, like, I like my teacher. Right. I like the teacher. It's yeah. still here. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to go to the board and just write it down and then explain what the particles were. And blah, blah, blah. So that was a lot of fun. So that was my first encounter with Japanese and pretty much the only encounter with Japanese I've ever had, even if I love the aesthetics and all of that. So I don't know anything about it, which is great because mm -hmm. you're going to, you're going to talk to us a little bit about, you know, some features of the language, I think. So then mm -hmm. you were there you, and you didn't come back to England immediately. You just stay there. Yeah, after that's After your right. studies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... Um... The original plan was to, well, was to first earn some money. That didn't work out. So then the second plan was uh, get my degree and then uh, come back to the UK after that. But um, when I first went there, my husband and I, we were dating, but we, mm -hmm. we ended up getting married uh, 
<laughs> within quite a short time of getting to Japan. And he had a job. And while I was at university, I started temping for a company and began my own work. And it just made more sense for us to stay in Japan uh, until it didn't make sense, really. So we we just decided to to continue living in Japan after I graduated. Mm-hmm. So you, you started immediately. Let me look at this. You started immediately doing things that had to do with language work somehow. Yeah, um, well, I had to pay, obviously, for my <laughs> university fees. Uh, my husband was a new graduate. Um, I was a student and uh, we did have some support from family and I was able to get a scholarship from the university. But still, mm. we there was a lot of money that we had to pay. So in addition to my husband's full-time job, I was working several part-time jobs. Uh, one of them was teaching English. Teaching English is quite uh-huh. a common uh, <laughs> role in, in Japan. Yeah. Um, this was not teaching English at an academic institute. This was teaching English at a English conversation school. So it's slightly mm-hmm. different to teaching English in a in a university or in a school. Mm-hmm. And I also started doing uh, transcription. Uh, so this was my into translation, which is what I do now. I was asked by a colleague of my husband's to uh, transcribe lyrics from uh, a CD. I think it was a CD probably at the time. Now yes. we have uh, lots of websites which have yeah. lyrics on them. Um, but back then you didn't really have any lyrics on the website because people mm-hmm. weren't really putting them up there. Yeah. And possibly due to the karaoke culture in Japan, whenever you buy a CD, it always has the lyrics in. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you buy a CD in the UK or the US, the artist doesn't necessarily want to put the lyrics in there because I believe they like to think of the lyrics and the music as one whole entity. So you shouldn't mm-hmm. really be reading the lyrics. You should be listening to the music and taking your own interpretation from them. So for albums like that, um, when they're released in Japan, they add an insert which has the English lyrics, uh, a, tra- a translation of the English lyrics, and um, a little what we call a liner notes, which is like a blurb about the album. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I started working with a writer, a Japanese writer, who writes these liner notes and was also doing some lyric translation. And he asked me to transcribe lyrics for wow. songs which didn't have the official lyrics, which is the majority um, of songs. And I started doing that in my final year of university. And when I graduated, I asked him if I could do this on a, a full-time basis, mm-hmm. um, moving more into translation. So my first job uh, as a language worker was translating from English into Japanese. Um, so I would <laughs> wow. transcribe the lyrics mm-hmm. and then I would provide a interpretive translation mm-hmm. in Japanese. And then uh, my partner, so uh, the person I was working with, my mm-hmm. business partner, he would then take my Japanese lyrics and then he would finish it off and make it into uh, a complete product. And this is this is different to writing lyrics to be sung. So writing oh, yeah, lyrics to be sure. sung is a completely different process, which you would mm-hmm. do with the actual artist. Yeah. This was more to give uh, people who were buying the music in Japan an mm. understanding of the lyrics. But it still required quite a lot of clever writing because it had to yes. you know, read like a lyric. So yeah. Wow. That was, so that you, was when you started. say from English into Japanese, you mean mainstream artists, you know, American artists, British artists, like who, for example? Yeah. So um, 
just because the person I worked with, he's a writer who specializes in the 60s and 70s music. Um, so I did a lot, a lot of stuff from the 60s, what we call um, the British invasion. So people like the Hollies. Um, <laughs> honestly, you probably haven't heard of most of the people I've worked with. I guess I, well, I did do some Beatles stuff. I have done okay. some Dylan, Rolling Stones. Um, I have Queen. heard of those. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've done interviews with some uh, with some people as well. So, um, yeah, but the, the stuff that I'm doing, that I was doing, was not, say, like new albums, like new yeah. artists. It was mm -hmm. more re-releases of, of albums mm -hmm. that people were putting out as uh, collector's things. So right. it sounds impressive, but it's not like... I'm <laughs> it not, is impressive. You know, <laughs> yeah, I'm not mingling with the stars or, or anything No, no, no. Like I that, wasn't expecting yeah. you to like, hey, so what's the story? What did you mean here or anything like that? <laughs> it's still very exciting, I think. I mean, it is for me. I, yeah, mean, I, I yeah, worked with yeah. artists. I know how close, I mean, from multiple perspectives. So yes, and worked with lyrics uh -huh. and things like that. So very impressive. So then what an amazing first job. I mean, that is insane. Yeah. Yeah. I loved it. And um, it was great because the guy that I worked with, I'm still friends with him. We're, we're like mm -hmm. best friends. We worked, he has a very difficult personality and I have quite a difficult personality. That's why um, you work well together. <laughs> yeah. So I think I, he said, I mean, I don't think we could work as well with other people, but mm. we worked really, really well together. It was it was a great partnership. Um, and we probably would have continued if CDs were still a thing. Uh -huh. um, but yeah, people don't really buy CDs as much as they used to. Yeah. Um, the music industry itself, as all creative industries, is struggling uh, mm. because there's so much available for free. So it was becoming difficult for me to continue doing that work, which I loved, and also make a living. Mm. Um, so in 2016, I then kind of gave, well, I I supported that work on the side, but then I took a full-time mm -hmm. job in-house mm -hmm. after that. Yeah. So was that for the Disney Resort? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So I, was like, I what? yeah. So <laughs> I love it. I went. Um, I started. So I was employed. It's it's the situation in Japan is a little different to the situation in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So uh, Tokyo Disney Resort is where I worked, but I was not employed by Disney. I was employed by uh, Oriental Land, mm -hmm. and I was employed as a translator and a copywriter. Um, so Fancy. I yeah. It was it was a lot of fun. I. It I was. <laughs> I was not that keen on Disney, to be honest, before I went there. And I can say that because I, I told my colleagues at Disney there, um, I I didn't really understand the appeal of mm -hmm. uh, Tokyo Disneyland or Tokyo Disney Sea. It just looked like a lot of people buying a lot of stuff and lining up yes. for rides, which were not that exciting. Um, <laughs> but once I was in there, I I realized how much goes into creating an experience and it's not about it's not about going on the ride it's about the story that leads up to that it's about immersing yourself in this different world it's mm. it's about um it's not about fast exciting thrills it's about becoming part of of something else and yeah. that really resonated with me and it's something that the longer i was there i i really began to appreciate it and i was i was really fortunate to work with lots of 
incredibly talented uh, writers and also you know artists as well who were who were drawing for for Disney in the wow. in in Japan so it was a it was a really it was an experience that kind of changed the way I thought about what I do as a mm-hmm. as a translator and a, as a copywriter so it was it was very valuable yeah so you say copywriting obviously I guess everybody knows what that means but what about the translation part of it was it technical materials was it technical things about the rides was it a mixture of all sorts of possible things I cannot think of <laughs> what, uh, what yeah, did you so, translate so translation for uh, Oriental Land was done as part of a multilingual team mm-hmm. and the majority of uh, content that we dealt with would be guest-facing content. So mm. the website, um, get maps that you would use to get around the park, uh, press releases, instructions, guidelines, security measures, anything anything like that, which you know needed to be multilingual content, mm. that would be translation. Um, copywriting would be things which were more transcreation so more creative you would have a Japanese brief and Mm. then you would present uh, an English idea based on that uh, Japanese brief and then that would be used in designs for uh, products or for events and uh, and things like that so it was a it was a job which required quite technical uh, translation skills Mm -hmm. uh, but also the more creative out of the box thinking that translators you know also Mm. have when it came to copywriting so you needed to understand Japanese culture and the way that Japanese people communicate quite well to be able to uh, translate that into an English copy I think so Mm -hmm. that was um that was that was really fun for me because Mm -hmm. you know I I went to university in Japan so I had the advantage of living with in Japanese culture for a long time and kind of growing up in Japanese culture, but also being uh, a native speaker of English. So it was quite easy for me to communicate with my Japanese colleagues and translate what they wanted to say in a way that, you know, they were, they were happy with, I think. Mm -hmm. Anyway, you'd have to ask them. (laughs) They seemed happy. (laughs) So the materials that you translated were actually aimed at uh, foreign people in general, I guess, uh, who were visiting Japan and who would specifically visit Disney? Uh, yes, that's right. So the the all of the translations that the foreign language team works on at Oriental Land, they're all for guest facing content. So any any guest, any person who is visiting uh, Tokyo Disney Resort who is not a Japanese speaker mm. would be using those materials. I believe they used to have more languages, um, but now they have uh Jap- english uh chinese simplified chinese and korean um they used to have thai and indonesian as well but i don't think those contents are being updated now so the language team is is quite big uh, in-house mm-hmm. at uh, oriental land wow and that lasted for a long period or uh so i started there in 2016 and i left in uh 2020 which everybody knows is the pandemic year Yes, um, it's true. <laughs> yes, everybody uh, but, knows. <laughs> um, yeah, so, but I, I'd i actually already handed in my notice hmm. uh, to leave there before the pandemic kicked off. So it, it was completely unrelated. Hmm. And it was more to do with things that were happening uh, in my family life. I just decided that 
even though I loved working at Disney and it was so, um, I worked with an amazing woman who basically created the English at Tokyo Disney Resort and taught me an immense amount and working with her has been huge for my career. Um, but I'd realized that in-house just wasn't for me. I, it was really hard for me to kind of work within hours rather than within quantity or quality. So mm -hmm. to have to turn up nine to five, there was there was flexi time, but um, it wasn't that flexible. So having to turn up nine to five, five days a week, uh, every single week, uh, holidays, with it being Japan, you only get, I think I had 12 paid holidays, which is standard in Japan. Uh, mm -hmm. That's not like unusual, right. but I had two kids and I didn't have any sick days. So it meant it was very, very difficult for me to kind of take time off for myself. And my family was in the UK and I was used as a freelancer to taking like, I don't know, six weeks off. Well, not six weeks off, but going to the UK for yeah, six weeks and working, and working as from a freelancer. There. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. But I couldn't really do that. Um, I couldn't do that with my in-house job. So I'd already decided to to leave there. And there were some other things going on uh, at home that I wanted to kind of just take time to sort out. So in 2020, I, I took a career break and I took, I think I probably took about six months off to just mm -hmm. step back and uh, think about what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go. Yeah. Wow. That sounds amazing because I can only imagine because you were there for a long time. So it must have been like coming back to another world. Of course, you were in touch, obviously, with your family and the culture and everything else, but... Wow. So when did you become the president of the Japanese Association of Translators? I'm reading because I, I might say it wrong <laughs> because it's around this time. Am I right? Uh, no, no, that, that's really point? recent. Yeah. Ah, yeah. I, it was recent. Yeah. I, yeah. I just became the president of oh. JAT in um, June, but I've been volunteering for JAT for, well, so in 2020, I took some time off and I decided to focus on my family a lot more I mean everybody was that was during lockdown so mm -hmm. everybody was pretty much stuck at home focusing yeah. on their family whether they liked it or not absolutely um yeah I was pregnant gave... so yeah oh were I you oh well <laughs> oh yeah focusing yeah. on your pregnancy yeah I was, I was three so... months pregnant when the lockdown occurred so I was oh so was it a lockdown baby or no I guess yeah you, absolutely you yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's from he's from August so yeah definitely yeah. Uh, yeah all the constraints that have to do with that and all the testing and all the not seeing yeah. anybody and yeah that that, that was that <laughs> yeah I mean it's so at the time it, it felt so it was so it felt very different to how it feels now looking back but um mm. so it that time gave my husband and I a um space to kind of reflect on our life and think about what we wanted to do uh going forward like if we were happy to both be working full-time jobs if we wanted to still live in Japan if we wanted to still live we were living near Tokyo or if we wanted to move out to the countryside um and the conclusion was that my husband was ready to semi-retire um, mm -hmm. and I was happy to keep working. But I just left a full-time job and I hadn't really kept up my freelance uh, contacts. And I really only had that job that I was doing with mm -hmm. um, with the lyrics, which wasn't really working out, which is why I went in-house in the first place. Right. Um, so I was 
kind of stuck and I didn't really have anything to do. So I started to look at LinkedIn Mm -hmm. and I noticed that copywriters had this amazing uh, community on LinkedIn where they were supporting everybody. They were giving information. Um, That was around the time that, I don't know if you know it, but um, the marketing meetup uh, is a a big community in the UK. Mm And I think at the time it was all in person, but they were going online. And I thought, oh, it would be so nice if I had a community like this with translators who spoke in my language um, where I could, you know, go and talk to them and just get advice and help them. And at that time, I was a member of the Japan Association of Translators, JAT, but I wasn't really taking part in any of their activities. Mm-hmm. So I decided to set up my own group. So I set up my own Facebook group, which is called the JE Translator Hub. And um, I said, I just want a place where I can hang out, get some, you know, just talk about translation issues, see how everybody else is doing. And then from that, that group slowly grew. I think we have about 100, 150 members now. Um, and then in that group, I I asked people about the Japan Association, Japan Association of Translators. And I said, what's the point in this association? It doesn't seem to be doing very much for mm-hmm. its members. During um, COVID, um, there was no events going on because JAT is essentially an in-person association in the past. Mm-hmm. And they hadn't really put on anything online. So they were not prepared to deal with this. Um, and it's run by volunteers. So, you know, we all have jobs during COVID. We were all struggling. So naturally, there wasn't really that many resources. And people said to me, Jat is really good for this. It's really good for that. So I thought, okay, so instead of complaining about how Jat is not helping us, why don't I go and see if they need any help? So then I joined Jat as a volunteer and I started doing um, helping them with their PR, the social media um, activities. Um, the president at the time, Takeshi Miyahara, he was amazing. Um, I think if it hadn't been for him, uh, I don't think Jack would have seen it through COVID, to be honest. He he put in so much effort, uh, so much time and so much energy to do as much as we could, which from the outside looked like not very much, um, mm-hmm. especially with everybody else. But from the inside, looking at how few people there were to get things done, uh, it was really amazing. And that kind of inspired me um, to become a director this term. And fortunately, people thought I was suitable <laughs> to be the director, so to be the president. So even though I'm completely brand new to the board of directors um, at JAT, I've been in the background for the past two, three years, kind of mm-hmm. helping uh, the board and supporting the board in activities across uh, JAT and I wanted to be president because I've been looking at JAT and I've been looking at the translation uh, landscape and talking to translators in my group and I myself went from somebody who was not very successful doing very 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 bad in 2020 to somebody now who is uh, supporting my family or my income as a translator mm-hmm. and I I did upskill and I I did, you know, get information, but I always think it's a lot to do with my attitude, the way I feel about myself, the way I feel about my skills, uh, the way I present myself, uh, the way I'm active on social media. So I do think it's something that anybody can do if they're willing to put the time 
into it. I don't know, because your I'm profile saying, is very specific. <laughs> well, yes, I think, yes, that's true. Yeah, that's true. I'm I mean, not I don't... sure that it's very normal, let's use this word for the lack of a better uh -huh. one, um, that you have such an intense um, immersion, right, with the culture and such deep knowledge because you ended up studying there, like your, your regular studies, which is yeah. not something I guess I've heard of before because yeah. people already... You know, usually the ones that I know, even for Chinese and other more extravagant languages, let's say that, or more, uh -huh. you know, further away from our uh, linguistic reality, it's like they mostly started studying uh, in their master's levels, something like that, right? And only then they were there and they were there for a year and then they left and then they were, again, teaching English or Portuguese or whatever they spoke. And that was really the story. But it doesn't seem, uh, well, it's not your case, definitely, because you were there even before your graduate students uh, studies so it's very particular so i don't i don't think that it's just if i can do it anybody can do it because <laughs> it was yeah, just I mean, such a particular situation right you were you were in such yeah. predicament that it's not very common i think yeah but, that's that's true but the reason i say that anybody can do it is because um when i left my when i left my in-house job in 2020 um, and then i took six months off uh, to focus. And then after that, I started to retrain um, in conversion, copywriting and marketing and just to get a little bit more experience. Mm -hmm. But while I was doing that, I started applying to translation agencies just to get some job as a freelance uh, translator. Mm -hmm. And as you said, I mean, I do think I have a fairly unique profile and experience <laughs> But I was unable to get a rate uh, higher than the mm. entry level rate. So any oh, I agency... read that that uh, post that you yet yeah, right. did some months ago about that for sure. Exactly. I sure yep. Yeah. So being able to turn that around, obviously, I have the experience and I have the CV there. So it's not like I'm starting from zero. So mm -hmm. you know, it, my experience is is different. But I was still in the same position as a lot of translators are. Um, and I was able to leave that position and be in the position I am now. And that's why I'm really kind of passionate, I guess, about being mm -hmm. involved in volunteering for translators, because, yes, there are a lot of variables. I mean, you need excellent language skills. You need to know the culture. You need to be a really good translator. You need a professional attitude. You need to be good at marketing. You need to have a network. You need all of these things. But even if you have all of these things, um, if you don't have this confident attitude, if you're not willing to put yourself out there or mm. go and make these connections or be really active on LinkedIn, then you're, you're not going to be able to find the clients that you know, can can give you a, a living wage, basically. Because in um, your case, you 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 went through the the route of looking for translation agencies and all of that, and I well, things didn't work out the way that you expected them to, or you didn't know how they were gonna play out. And then, so what was the story? You ended up not working with any agencies and only working with direct clients, or yeah. So um, so when was that? So twenty. 2020. So I started uh, learning about copywriting. And actually, I was planning to leave translation uh, oh. and go into copywriting. Full um, stop. <laughs> because, yeah, because I just couldn't, I kept applying to translation agencies and negotiating, but nobody was able to pay me a rate, which which would, which was even half of what I was earning at Oriental Land. So mm -hmm. 
I wasn't being greedy. I was just looking for a living wage, basically. Um, but I wasn't that wasn't able to do that. So um, I thought perhaps the industry was no longer sustainable. And then I was on LinkedIn and I was seeing how copywriters were having a lot of success promoting their service and getting clients through social media um, on LinkedIn. So I worked for a couple of translation agencies just to kind of tide me over. And while I was doing that, I was studying conversion copywriting and I was also lurking on LinkedIn to see what everybody was doing and to see how they were getting work. Um, and I researched how copywriters were selling their services. And as I was doing that, I learned about transcreation. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to talk about transcreation here because everybody has their own definition of yes, transcreation. Of <laughs> um, but the advantage to transcreation for me is that I was already doing transcreation. And I would say the majority of translators are, especially if they're in marketing translation. Mm -hmm. But clients, especially in Japan, when you say translation, uh, they have a certain expectation for what you're going to provide them with. And that is usually a direct translation, mm -hmm. which is... Uh, priced per character or per word mm -hmm. but when you talk about copywriting or transcreation that's a different service that's a different service which has a different result which is priced differently mm -hmm. so I knew that if I were able to explain what transcreation or uh, Japanese-based English copywriting was I would be able to give my clients the service that they wanted and be able to charge the rate that I thought was appropriate so then I started to come together with my brand, which is Kotonaha Bloom, uh, think about what my brand meant, think about what it represented. I asked a Japanese copywriter to write the copy for my website. Mm -hmm. And then I, I still remember but in 2021, in September 2021, I started posting uh, on LinkedIn with the sole purpose of getting noticed and getting direct clients. Mm -hmm. um, and... I was working with a few translation agencies then. Only one of them I was happy with, and I'm still working with them now. Um, and I've since moved away, and I work with four direct clients, one translation agency, and then the odd direct client, like every month or so, who's not a regular client, but, mm -hmm. you know, is introduced to me by there. So, yeah, I've moved away from... And it's not that I have anything against translation agencies. Um, it's just that... As I move, as I start to price my services differently, I haven't been able to find a translation agency in Japan uh, mm. that is able to price, to pay me equivalent to what I quote, and also has a good understanding of what it is that I can do and can sell that to the client, with right. the exception of the one translation agency that I, I continue to work with. Mm. So there's there's let's say translation there, but there's a lot of, you know, knowledge and creativity and a background that most people don't have, right? Obviously. So it's pretty fascinating. So then you just mentioned your company only in 2000, I mean, only because it's recent, but only in 2021, you actually created your brand, your company, all of this was established, right? So, yeah, the, so it's, why it's did not you feel a company, the need? it's just a brand. Oh, ah, so why did you feel the need of creating a, a brand and not just having your name, which sounds lovely, by the way. Heidi Carino, it just sounds lovely. 
to me. <laughs> but why didn't you keep it that way? And why did you feel the need to create a brand? This is this is really interesting to me because you're such a, I guess, a, a marketing or creativity oriented person. And I guess probably comes a little bit from there, right? Also the name, the bloom word, it sounds amazing. Uh, it has an effect in your mouth, right? It kind of resonates your whole body and also takes you to probably Japanese blooming flowers, right? Those white uh, what, right, right. What are yeah. they? What are super typical? Uh, the cherry blossoms, right? The sakura. Cherry blossoms, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. So um, anybody who has given their translation, their freelance, it's not a company, but their freelance persona, a brand mm -hmm. name, will know that it takes the longest time to decide <laughs> whether you're going to use your personal name or you're going to use a brand name. Mm. Um, my reason was that I spoke to a lot of uh, my Japanese colleagues and I asked them which sounded more authentic, which which would you trust more, a mm. company which was named after my personal name or a company that had an actual name and 100% uh, a company, sorry, a brand that had an actual name. Um, I think in the UK, it's very common to work with freelancers in Europe as well in the US. It's mm -hmm. very common to work with freelancers and therefore having your personal name makes the most sense. As you said, my name is quite unusual. I don't think there are any other Heidi Carinos on LinkedIn. Um, so it's, it's a good name to mm -hmm. use. Yep. But in Japan, um, Heidi Carino would, would not be a name that would necessarily be trustworthy unless I already had a persona there unless I was already you know publicly mm -hmm. known right so I spoke with my I had a lot of back and forth about the um the naming of my of my brand and in the end I decided that my target is Japanese clients so it has to be a brand name that appeals to Japanese clients even if that means that that brand name is not necessarily understood by people who don't speak Japanese. Mm -hmm. So Kotonaha Bloom is a very nice brand in Japanese, I've been assured. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, but to an English speaker, it probably doesn't mean anything. It doesn't, mm -hmm. it's quite unclear what it is that I do. Um, but that's okay because I'm not targeting. Um, I don't target agencies in the UK or Europe or the US. Because That's very I interesting think... to me <laughs> that well, you don't do that I... and you don't think that way because I would think a little bit that way, right? Like you would, yeah. since it's your target language, that you would also look for clients in this particular place so that, you know, they would order their Japanese uh, text to be translated into English because blah, blah, blah. But it's very interesting to me that that perspective and it's it's something to really think about I think from a lot well, of people I think this I mean and this this is just my opinion mm -hmm, but of course um I work with Japanese clients a lot and I lived in Japan for a very long time and Japanese clients like working with Japanese brands they like mm -hmm. working with Japanese people who understand them and they uh want you to be able to communicate well in Japanese that is a very baseline expectation mm. so if you are not based in japan or you are not a very good japanese speaker then you need to offer something else to compete against that and therefore for companies who are based in the europe or in the uk or in the us if they want to win uh, a japanese client then they're gonna have to work much much harder than a japanese translation agency japanese translation mm -hmm. agencies already offer 
quite a reasonably priced service for translation. So if you're a company based, for example, in the UK, you would have to be very competitive, which translates as cheap. I think you yes. would have to be really cheap. <laughs> um, and that means that you wouldn't be able to pay that much to your translators. Mm. Um, obviously, if you're based in the UK, there are other advantages that you have. So if you're a really good Japanese speaker or you have you are a Japanese person owned company based in the UK mm. and you can go to Japan and you can sell your service and you can say, yes, we're based in the UK. We're not a Japanese company, but we have this advantage. We can localize your content. We know the market. Then you can probably, you know, uh, negotiate a really good deal. I mean, that's my selling point. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know that. But I think it's very, very hard for a company based so far away from Japan to be able to win a high paying client in Japan. And even if they have those clients on their books, they probably already have translators that they trust yeah. who they're, they're giving work out. So when it comes to, I can't target everybody with my brand. I'm, I'm only a single person. So when I looked at who it would be the most efficient and the most effective for me to translate, rather than an across the board uh, brand name, which could yeah. attract everybody, it just mm -hmm. made more sense for me to focus uh, my target on the Japan market and make connections with translation agencies in the UK via translators. So that's one of the advantages of being on LinkedIn is that, you know, I know other translators and if they do happen to know about work, which is Japanese to English, then they'll mention it to me. And if it's if it's good for me, I'll take it. If it's not, I'll, you know, I'll recommend uh, somebody else in my mm. circle. So that worked out well for me, I think. I don't know if it works for everybody else. That sounds very good to me. So mm -hmm. I'm I'm fascinated by your strategy. <laughs> but I guess it's because you have given a lot of thought to all of this marketing thing and uh, target and audience yeah. and all of this, right? Yeah, yeah. But before we go away, I really cannot help but ask, going back to your first encounter with Japanese, the language itself, because I mean, the culture is... We can, let's not even get into that because it's it's insane. It's <laughs> fascinating. It's beautiful. It's amazing. But I mean, it's it's a very complex thing, I guess. Mm -hmm. So what was the first impact? What did you feel when you first thought to yourself, okay, I'm going to learn this language? And you went to that very first class. So what happened? Did you know anything about it? Did you know that the structure was in a certain way? Did you have an idea or it's something that you never even had thought about before that men came into your mm -hmm. life? <laughs> um, well, when I, in, so I went to Japan in October 98, and I enrolled in the university in September 99. So I'd been there about a year. And mm -hmm. like most uh, early language learners, I thought I had quite a good grasp of the Japanese language when mm -hmm. I when I went to my first class uh you know I I knew I knew what I was saying I knew everyone else was saying <laughs> and then of course I went to my first class and realized I knew absolutely nothing <laughs> I mean it was like I was like really yeah I I of course I'd been there for a year but I'd just been with my husband who spoke English yeah. um and my 
my sister-in-law, my my husband's sister, uh, she does. She she was a subtitle translator, so she spoke English as well. Oh wow! So very fortunate. Yeah. So I thought I was a Japanese speaker, um, but I wasn't. Um, but I think, and probably people who are really interested in Japanese might not like this, but I've never been very good at languages. I was <laughs> I really struggled to learn German and French at school. I lived in Germany for a short while, um, but the masculine feminine. Uh, nouns uh, that 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 was beyond me and the constant changing um, of the verbs and perhaps the way it was taught I, I don't know it was very very difficult for me to good and I was not good at languages um, but for some reason Japanese just clicked it was immediately I could understand it not I, sorry I don't mean I could I was fluent immediately right, <laughs> I but, mean, but the philosophy of how things worked yeah the philosophy yeah. uh Japanese is incredibly regular mm -hmm. so all the verbs apart from two they all change in the same way whichever tense you're talking in so all you need to do is remember uh the root words and then you can and then you can talk um the the concept of I think one of the things that people struggle with most when they're talking, when they're speaking in Japanese, is not necessarily the language itself, but the culture. Mm. Um, and this culture of being quite um, kind of avoiding the subject, being a little bit modest, uh, being quite uh, delicate around particular topics, not being very direct. So trying mm -hmm. to get your point across by being indirect. I think for somebody growing up in the UK, that's not such an alien concept. I right. think in the UK, <laughs> we have that in our culture, right? So that also was quite easy for me to, to understand. And then it was just a case of memorizing a huge volume of vocabulary, which is, which is much easier in an immersion experience when I'm mm. daily using, I, I mean, course. like I said, back then that was the nineties. So uh, I didn't have like a mobile phone where I could just mm. check things up when I when I went to the supermarket I I needed to know if I was buying salt or sugar um, <laughs> and you know and like nobody really speaks English in Japan it's oh. getting better now but mm. um, the level of English is especially outside of Tokyo it's it's pretty non-existent so if you don't speak Japanese then you you really can't get anything done at that time wow. right um, so it was it was for me, it was not as difficult a language to learn as other languages, which is why I always say to my kids, if you want to learn another language, um, go and live abroad. <laughs> well, like, go live overseas yes, for that year. is the yeah. best case scenario. Also, depending on the yeah. language, because like English is a little bit different from any other language, I suppose, because of the amount of resources that you have everywhere. But is yeah. it true that Japanese... <laughs> It's me and my urban legends. Uh, is it true that Japanese basically gets a lot of their vocabulary from other languages, like any other language, obviously, but then it Japanizes it a little bit like I have an example. <laughs> it might be uh -huh. a lie, <laughs> but I've heard somewhere that uh, they get the word cheeseburger and they call it something like chizu bugudu, something like that. You know, they make it a little bit of a, is, is this common? Is this a resource that they use a lot? Yeah, so uh, the Japanese language has three different alphabets. They have the the kanji, which is the Chinese character alphabet, mm -hmm. uh, hiragana, which is a phonetic alphabet, 
written in quite like a curvy script. Mm. And the hiragana is used for verb endings or to represent a kanji, say, for, for children's books who, who perhaps haven't learned how to read that Chinese character. And then the third one, katakana, uh, these are quite um, straight-lined uh, characters. They look very different to hiragana, but they're also a phonetic alphabet. Mm -hmm. And these words, this alphabet is used to represent imported words and language. So, for example, uh, my name is Heidi Carino. Mm -hmm. Carino is a Japanese surname, mm -hmm. so that would be written in Chinese characters. But Heidi is not a Japanese name, so that's written in katakana. Um, and the Japanese language has a consonant vowel, consonant vowel. Mm -hmm. So, for example, cheeseburger, when we say cheeseburger, we end in a z sound. But in Japanese, there's no consonant ending. So it would have to be a zu sound. So sa, za, ji, zu, ze, zo, zu. So mm. then it would be cheese burger. So mm. it's still the same word. It's still cheeseburger. It's just that to adapt it to the Japanese alphabet, uh, it would have to be adopted. So my name is a great example in that um, my name is Heidi mm -hmm. and there's no D in the Japanese alphabet. Um, it's been adapted, it's been adapted now, you, you can actually make the D sound. Mm. Um, but traditionally, there's no D sound in the Japanese alphabet. So okay. a lot of people from the older generation call me Haiji, mm. rather than D. Um, and some words which are imported from uh, overseas, the same thing has happened to them. So if they didn't have that sound, in their alphabet and they mm -hmm. didn't they there wasn't a way to kind of render that sound then the sound would change or some words are imported from the spanish some are imported um from dutch and some are imported mm -hmm. from english so there is a mix of different words there in the alphabet uh, in the language which are which are imported um and, and changed slightly to adapt them <laughs> to the japanese alphabet yeah right oh I'd love to know. I mean, wouldn't it be fascinating to learn a language like that? It's just, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but going back to the being good at languages, I also, people forgive me, but I also believe that you're not good at languages. I think that you have a certain relationship and somehow there's something about certain languages that, that just resonate with you. And then of course, if you need to learn them for a specific reason, that's a bit different and you have to try your hardest. But if you do it just out of your intention and emotions, I guess then it's not necessarily like that. I don't know that people are good at languages, but of course, a person who has learned languages from different families can think of things in a certain way. But I'm a bit with you with the, not because you're, you consider yourself good or bad because you've tried a couple of languages. That doesn't mean that if you're going to expand, because I mean, there's uh, officially about, <laughs> officially <laughs> as in terms of the number 7,000 languages or more Then I mean, how do you know if, if you don't have a relationship to any of them, it's doesn't make any sense. So I right, guess that's, yeah. that's how it, how it, it happens and because you had a lot of reasons <laughs> yeah 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 that were not linguistic let's say that probably <laughs> that really helped you get into the groove right with the Japanese so mm -hmm. Heidi I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time as you know we talked about I talked about coming to the having you in the podcast many many times and finally it happened 
So I'm really happy I did. I'm fascinated by how things unfolded in your life because it all seems very light and very straightforward (laughs) (laughs) when you talk about them because you have that style, right? It's like, wow, very flowy. But I'm sure that there was a lot of, you know, other stories in the mix. And so it's great to just um, read your posts. I love the way that you write and the way that you talk about things. And it's so real, but at the same time, so subtle. I guess that's why you identify Mm -hmm. with the Japanese culture so much. But it's been amazing and I'm really happy that we finally did it. So thank you so much and I'll see you around. And if you guys are not following Heidi yet, you should because she has a lot of insights. Oh, no, no, no. I cannot leave without talking about something else. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. She has a podcast. Come on. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) that's true. Yes, I have a I have a bilingual podcast. So this goes back to targeting your audience. But um. I have a podcast with Yukari Watanabe, who is a friend and colleague of mine, and we wanted to do something to help uh, Japanese translators. And we thought about it a long time, and we just kept thinking about it and planning it and fiddling around. And then in the end, we just thought, oh, let's just do it. Let's just talk in the language that is more, most comfortable for us. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be for everybody. Um, but as long as one or two people like it and we're <laughs> learning something, maybe that's enough, you know, maybe that's enough. So that was our target audience was mm. was really, really narrowed down. But it meant that it was something that we can make, which is fun. And I, I learned something every every episode talking to Yukari-san. So if you if you can speak English and Japanese or if you're interested in learning Japanese or you're a yes. Japanese speaker who wants to brush up on your English, then um, it's a really, it's a good, it's a good podcast. And I think it's, it's quite when you say it's bilingual, in English and then you can't sound response in Japanese. Mm-hmm. Ah, because you have a dialogue yeah. in each. Oh, okay. Because That's right. I also do episodes in Portuguese, but it's either all in English or all in Portuguese, but I never thought about this option. Yeah. <laughs> <doing>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, um, you, you really need to be able to speak both Uh, languages to enjoy the podcast but Mm. I think um it's at the beginning I mean you speak you speak two languages or possibly more so you understand it's it can be quite difficult to talk to somebody in your native language and then have them talk to you in your second language and then have to try that. respond to it. them in your native language right? <laughs> right so I have to constantly remind myself to respond to Yukari-san uh, in English and, and the same for her as well but wow. now we've kind of got used to it it's um yeah it's it's fun it, it's yeah it's I understand nice. I, I do a lot of those exercises with myself I code switch a lot to see if I can do it and you know go to Spanish go to Portuguese come back to English and all of that just playing around but in the podcast I mean I <laughs> I can only mm-hmm. imagine so yeah maybe I should give it a shot right I'm always open to yeah. new ideas so great so mm-hmm. I need all of your links to actually put then in the in the presentation little presentation yeah. so then if you can send them to me because I'm sure that you know people who are involved in in this mixture of English and Japanese I'm sure they will you know really enjoy anything that you have to say because you have you know very fresh ideas <laughs> I think. So it was really great talking to you. You gave me a lot of food for thought for me too. And it's been amazing. So yeah, I'll keep on looking at your, at the stuff that you do and just, uh, I'll give it a shot in the podcast to see if I can at least get an idea of the English part. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been of it's course. been so much fun. I've wanted to come on the show for a while. So this was this was really great. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, well, let's do it some other time. And until yeah. then, I cannot go to your podcast because there's no Japanese here, unfortunately, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll see you around. Thank you so much. And yep, thank you. have a great day. Bye. Yep, you too. Okay, bye-bye.